Good morning again, everyone. My name's DJ, church pastor here at Parker Ford. This morning, we are beginning a new sermon series, and I said this at the beginning of, of the service this morning. Even though I'm calling it a new series, it's really just a continuation of further up and further in. But I wanted to break it into two different segments because for the last six weeks, what we focused on was the posture of walking through life with God. And we can see from the scriptures how God has called us to walk with him. And that's a beautiful thing to sit down and read in the morning or here on a Sunday morning during a sermon. Um, but the reality of what that looks like can be very different as we live our lives, particularly as we experience pain and suffering and trauma. It's one thing to intellectually know that the Bible says that God is with you. It's another thing to be in the midst of your life falling apart and believe that God is with you. So what I want to do in this series is I want to put us, each of us, between a rock and a hard place. I want us to be stuck right at the foot of the cross with all the pain and all the sacrifice and the blood of Christ, the brutality of the crucifixion, I want us to be very cognizant and recognize that. But I also want us to hold on to this, that God is with us. So I want us to be in this place of tension where we realize the result of sin and we think about it and we feel it And yet we can also hold on with everything within us to our hope in Christ that he walks with us even in those darkest of places. So over the next six weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to look at different pictures from scripture of walking with God through really hard situations. So next week I'm going to teach on Jonah in the belly of the whale. And we're going to look at Paul when he was shipwrecked. And we're going to look at Elijah in the wilderness. So we're going, to t- we're going to take difficult passages and see the word of God. Because in De- Deuteronomy, God says, in Deuteronomy 6, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then the writer of Hebrews quotes that, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But what did Christ say when he was stretched out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the blurb for this series, if you go on our website, says this. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But God's word promises his children repeatedly, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even though we walk through the valley of death, he is always with us. In prison, sickness, in the desert, and in death, he is with us. He will never forsake us because his son was forsaken on our behalf. What can separate us from him? Nothing. Shall we fear death or warfare, poverty or lack? No, we shall fear nothing but God because perfect love casts out all fear. We walk with him through the valley. He will never leave us and never forsake us. So this year we're going to do something that's probably a little bit different in that we're going to actually look at the crucifixion story on, on Palm Sunday, uh, the week before Easter, and that our series is kind of build to that point where Christ is on the cross, crying out with everything in him, quoting from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And then we're going to celebrate the resurrection together on April 1st for Easter. So we begin this series looking at the story of Adam and Eve and the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And just by way of introduction to this morning's service, I don't have a great factual memory. Anybody in here have a photographic memory besides my wife? Yeah? So I do not. Um, My memory works in a really strange way, and I've had to learn how to utilize it because I remember things based on how I felt in this situation, not based on the facts. So I can remember accurately, very accurately, how I felt and how I perceived other people to have felt in the situation, but I could mix up all the facts about it. So I've had to work really hard at disciplining myself to learn how to remember stuff um, in, a more, in a more strategic and factual way. And um, especially in, as I've moved on in education into grad school and, and that kind of thing, I've had to train my mind to learn how to remember things in a different way than I naturally do. There are a few situations, though, that were so impactful in my life that I can remember everything about it. So there's my favorite song, one of my favorite songs. I remember the very first time I ever heard it. I remember who I was with. I remember where I was sitting. I remember what I felt like. I remember every word to the song the very first time I ever heard that song. And this was when I was 10 years old, I think. And I can remember that so accurately today. Well, this teaching that I'm going to give this morning, I can remember the moment that, that I was taught this by someone else. It had such a profound impact on me, and it's changed the way that I live with God. And I hope that it unlocks something for you too. Um, And this teaching was given to me by a man named Don Riker, who works for Teaching the Word Ministries. And um, Don gave this teaching to a small group of us about five or six years ago. And I remember everything about that conversation because it opened my eyes in a way that I had never realized when it came to the scriptures and the result of sin, particularly on an emotional level, and how God desires to rectify that and make that right. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, well-known passage. And we're going to begin, the Bible doesn't begin with bad news, it begins with good news. God created, and it was good. But this morning we're going to start with the bad news. Genesis chapter 3, this is from the ESV, you can follow along on the screen. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's so much imagery in here and so many sermons that I could give based on this alone. Spiritual warfare, how idols work, how the enemy attacks us, all of those things. Uh, Just one thing to point out here, and this idea comes from Uh, the Chinese theologian, Watchman Nee, he says, notice how God did not design us to be able to discern between good and evil. 
originally, when God created Adam and Eve, they were not to make the distinction between good and evil. They didn't know the difference. They were just to walk in obedience and faith. We still struggle with that so much today. Discerning between good and evil, right and wrong. And culture plays into that and all sorts of things play into that. But it's an interesting thought. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The first thing that happens, knowing between good and evil, the very first thing that happens, their eyes are opened and what? They know they're naked. In lots of kids' movies, particularly illustrated ones, cartoons, or animation, for some reason we feel the need to put clothes on animals when we personify them. So Winnie the Pooh comes running down the hill in his little red shirt. In the movie Sing, anybody seen the movie Sing, the kids' movie? They're, they're all wearing like button-up, you know, suits and ties and stuff, and these are, these are animals. There's never been an animal in the history of the world that's been naked. There is only one created living thing that can be naked. God's image bearers. Isn't that interesting? We are the only creatures in all of creation, that are naked. Put that thought away for a second. You can chew on it. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread 
You shall, sorry, I can't see it. <laughs> you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for Eve, for his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flashing sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There are two consequences, two major consequences to sin. And we see this profoundly in the story of Adam and Eve. And you and I walk this out just as profoundly today as that very first day. There is a legal consequence to sin and there is an emotional consequence to sin. Legally, when you sin, when I sin, when I transgress God's commandment, or miss the mark of his holiness, his righteousness, it results in guilt. I am guilty before a just God. Guilt results in separation, and separation results in death. I'm going to teach on this at some point, I think later this year, because this is really key for me about God being our judge and how that's a good thing. If God did not judge you, you would not be saved. Let me say that again. If God did not judge you, you would not be saved because the Hebrew word and the Greek word for judgment is is to separate. So when God saves you, he separates you out of death and into light. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious son. That's God judging you. What God does not do for those in Christ is he does not condemn you. Condemnation is separation unto death. Condemnation is separation unto darkness. God has removed from you your sin as far as the east is from the west. That is God judging you. He is separating from you your sin and removing it from you as far as the east is from the west. The goats are judged, but the sheep are judged as well. The tares are judged, but the wheat is judged as well. So do not avoid the judgment of God. Don't run from it. Because there is no salvation. There is no relationship with God apart from his judgment. Anybody ever prayed that God would judge them? I do. With great seriousness and fear and trembling, I've learned how to pray, God, I pray that you would judge me. Because better that it happens today that he does that separating work within me, that refining work of the Holy Spirit within me today than in another day. Better today when I can learn from it and grow. Better today when I can become a richer and more deeper disciple of his than than in another day. God will judge you. You will be judged. So invite his judgment in your life today because for sons and children and daughters of God, judgment does not lead to condemnation. 
the judgment of God leads to life, which is why David prays that God would judge him. David prays and lifts up God as the righteous and holy judge. Learn how to see God that way. This is the legal side of sin. When you sin, you are guilty before a righteous and holy God. You cannot stand in his presence. Sin cannot cannot tolerate the presence of God. And so the result of sin, the wages of sin is death. There is no life outside of the sustaining presence of God. When when something is removed from the life-sustaining presence of God, there is nothing but death. This is the legal side of what happens when we sin. Most Christians, in fact, every Christian, has. if you have a, a, a relationship with Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have done business with God on the legal side of things. Who here has been forgiven by God because of his son? All right, you did business with God when it came to the legal consequence of your sin. But that's not where it stops because there's also a psychological or an emotional and internal, a spirit, a soul level consequence to sin. And many, many Christians, although they've done business with God in the legal side, have never learned how to deal with the emotional side. And so you live your life as a bifurcated person divorced from yourself because legally you're forgiven, but emotionally you've never learned how to live like it. The, legal, the emotional consequence of sin is shame. Technically speaking, we don't feel guilt. We experience it. What we feel is shame. So when you say, I feel guilty, or you should feel guilty, or he should feel guilty, what you're actually saying is, I feel ashamed. Guilt is a reality, not a feeling. Spiritually speaking, shame is an emotion that you feel. And it's the emotional consequence of the guilt, the legal standing. We feel shame. We experience shame most vividly through nakedness, which results in hiding, which results in self-righteousness. Any attempt, any time a person attempts to hide their nakedness, they have done the exact same thing as Adam and Eve and sewn together fig leaves to cover their emotional shame. Let me say that again. Anytime someone attempts to cover their nakedness from God or from other people, that is self-righteousness. It is the attempt to clothe yourself, to do it yourself. When we say someone is self-righteous, we, what we mean in our culture is we mean that it's probably someone who is looking for the speck in someone else's eye while they have a log in their own, right? That, that person is a hypocrite and self-righteous. So the, the example of this that Jesus gives is the two men went to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. And the Pharisee prayed. Do you remember what he prayed? Oh God, thank you that I'm not like this man, a sinner. 
because I give my tithes and I memorize my Bible verses and I attend Awanas and whatever, whatever, whatever. The other man says, God, I am a sinner unworthy of your forgiveness. And Jesus says, who went home justified with God? The Pharisee or the tax collector? So we tend to think of the Pharisee as self-righteousness, and it is. That, that's an attempt to cover nakedness before God and before other people. Thank you that I'm not naked like that person. Thank you that I'm not as fallen or broken as that person, God. Thank you that I've learned to work harder than them. Thank you that I'm smarter than them or whatever. That's self-righteousness. Equally self-righteous, though, from a spiritual standpoint, hang with me, is the person sitting in the bar drinking away their life. That is self-righteousness. That is the attempt to cover the emotional consequence of sin with a self-fulfilling action. Equally self-righteous is the person who plays their pain away on video games, hidden in a room. Equally self-righteous is the person that gets their identity from work and doing what they do better than anyone else. That is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is not just the Pharisee. All of us are self-righteous because every single one of us, whether through religion or through drugs, whether through Bible verses or through drinking or something in between, has attempted to hide our nudity and our nakedness from God and from others. Can, can you, do you hear me? Are you with me? Do you hear the impact of what this is and the reality of this is? You are self-righteous. And so am I. And unless we deal with this fact, we're never going to be able to live as whole and healed people on the emotional side of a relationship with God. If you only deal with the legal requirement, you will continue to live your life feeling as if you're guilty. You will continue to live with shame even though God has forgiven you. So think about it this way. Is this forgiveness? All right, my son doesn't obey. He doesn't clean up his room. He comes in to me, and I said, did you clean up your room? And he says, no, and I don't care. All right, this is a hypothetical, purely, purely hypothetical. So I say, I, I discipline my son, There's consequences. He goes and he cleans his room and he comes back. And I say to him, I forgive you, but I want you to feel terrible the rest of the day. I want you to feel so bad for what you did. I want you to live this day knowing that you blew it. Is that forgiveness? How many of us live our lives with God like this? How many of you walk around? And I know I have. You don't have to raise your hand. This is, a, this is a vulnerable moment. How many of us live our lives like this? Where, okay, I believe that God forgave me. On an on a intellectual ascent level, I, I believe his word that he forgave me. But, oh, I don't deserve it. Oh, I can't look up at him. Oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, I think he's still angry at me for this. I, I, like, I, I believe it on that level, 
but not enough to actually feel it. God actually wants you to feel it. He's forgiven you so deeply through Christ that the emotional washing of you is to have the same power and effect as the legal washing of you. If you live your life feeling like you're not good enough, essentially what you're saying is that Christ in me is not enough. Now, I'm not saying you're supposed to walk around in the self-righteous way of saying, thank God I am so awesome all the time. There's There's balance, right? We see this tension in Paul because on one level, he's like so confident. And he's just like, don't make me use my authority because I've got it and I'll use it. And then on the other hand, he's like, I'm the chief of all sinners. Unworthy. And, And he lives in this balance. This balance. We have to learn to live in the emotional balance of God's forgiveness. It doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to feel the weight of sin. Of course we're to feel the weight of sin. But if you're to feel the weight of sin, how much more are you supposed to feel the weight of forgiveness? He hasn't just forgiven you so you can legally stand in front of him. All right, this is the remedial requirement, which is just a fancy way of saying that our guilt requires something and our shame requires something. Legally, guilt requires forgiveness. Forgiveness requires blood. Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sins, if you're a KJV guy. There is no taking away of sins. There is no legal fulfillment. There is no forgiveness outside the shedding of blood. This is why John looks at Jesus, John the Baptist, and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How did Jesus take away the sins of the world? Through his cross, through the the sacrifice, the blood of Christ, washing away our sins. Legally, the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. God has forgiven you legally because of the blood of Christ. Emotionally, though, don't stop there. Because emotionally, there's a requirement. And it's righteousness. Shame requires righteousness. Any attempt to clothe oneself is an act of self-righteousness. Righteousness comes from being clothed by God in the righteousness of Christ. Adam and Eve sin. Their eyes are opened. Legally, they are guilty before God emotionally everything is wrong now. Because when they look at themselves, they're naked and they are ashamed. And so God comes walking through the garden as was his custom, apparently, in the cool of the evening. And when they sense his presence coming, I 
I did not plan on that. But they're here. How ridiculous. How utterly ridiculous. Can you hide from the eyes of God? Whoever's going to take this tree, I'm sorry. And then they take these things and they sew them together and they cover their nakedness and nudity with this. How foolish. How silly. How ineffective. This moment, I want you to feel it with me. This, this, today is about feeling with God. Feel this with me. Adam and Eve crouching down, hoping that God won't see them back here. And he comes and he calls for them. And I can just feel Adam. And I can feel Eve because they're back here and they realize what they've done and their eyes have been opened and everything is wrong. And it's never been wrong before. And they feel something within them that they've never felt before because they've only felt right before. They've only felt righteous, aligned with God. That's all they've ever known. And now it's wrong. And God is right there, personified in some amazing way. And he calls them out. And I can just sense Adam stepping out. And he's stepping out in fear because when he looks up, he's expecting the belt. When he looks up, he's expecting the dagger drawn. When he steps out and he's naked, he's expecting the hand raised to knock him down, to crucify him because it requires blood. And God raises a dagger and there is a death for the first time in recorded history. But instead of it being his child, takes the lamb and the first sacrifice takes place and instead of the raised hand to beat them for what they've done wrong he takes the skin of the animal and he wraps them in it can you imagine that moment of vulnerability you're expecting the hand of God almighty to come down upon you in anger and wrath And you step out, and instead what you receive is God embracing you and covering you. Why do we still do this today with God when we know his character? When you sin, as you walk through life, And you hide from God emotionally and you wrestle with that inner turmoil and the pain and the hatred for yourself for what you've done or haven't done or continue to do. And you just hate yourself because of it. And we still think, we still think today that when we step out, when he draws us out, his hand will be raised. God is a wrathful God. Not so for those In Christ Jesus. Not so for you and me. Because when God calls you out, out of the fig leaves and out of the bushes, He never calls you out to expose your nakedness, which is always our fear. If I step out, 
vulnerably, naked before God, he will show it. He will, he will reveal it to everyone and say, look at this hypocrite. Look at what he's really like. But when we step out, God does everything in his power to cover it. I have a little girl that I adore. And even though I'm a sinful, broken father and I let her down, if my little girl were to get sick and have a fever and become delirious, and if she were to strip off her clothing and run out into the street without anything on, I promise you I would do everything in my power to run after her and scoop her up in my arms, not to say, look, here she is, she's sick, she stripped herself, I would do everything in my power to cover her and to clothe her. When God calls you out from that place, it is so that he might clothe you, not expose you. When God calls you out of hiding, it is so that he will clothe you, not expose you. God never uses your vulnerability to shame you further. He uses your vulnerability to heal your shame. God never uses your vulnerability to shame you more, to cause you to be more naked. God always uses your vulnerability, the stepping out towards his voice, to cover you. Isaiah 64 says, Behold, you were angry, and we sinned in our sins. We have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Everyone's self-righteous deeds are like the fig leaves. So if you're the religious person, or you're the person who struggles with alcohol, wherever you are in between, your attempt to cover your nakedness, your shame, is like a polluted garment to God. It is a fig leaf. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Dried up, blown away, because there is no emotional depth. There is no weight to hold you down. But the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and clothe them. The Bible does not begin with bad news, and it does not end with bad news, though that's often how we preach the gospel. You're a sinner, you're going to hell, and the world's going to end in the lake of fire. That's not the gospel. That's bad news. The gospel's not bad news. The gospel is good news. The Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created, and it was good. And you know how it ends? God recreates, and it is very good. And he dwells among his people. That is the gospel. Good news to good news. One of the pictures of this comes from Revelation 19, and it's the marriage of Christ's bride to Jesus. And John records this saying, 
Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. How has she been made ready? It was granted to her. Who granted it to her? Jesus granted it to her. God granted it to her. It was granted to her to what? Clothe herself. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And what is the fine linen? Righteousness. The righteous deeds of the saints. Through the blood of Christ, your guilt has been forgiven. If you have a relationship with Christ, you already know this. And you've already believed it. That God forgives you through his blood, by faith in his work. He has forgiven you. You are no longer legally guilty before God. There is no relational separation from you and God. What shall separate you from the love of God? Hide or death, angels or demons? Shall anything separate you from God's love? No, I'm convinced that there is nothing that will separate you from the love of God. Your body will die, but you will be resurrected and raised to new life. That's, that's the legal side. All of us have done business with God on that end. What I'm asking and challenging and inviting you today is if you have not, or if you need a refresher in this, to learn how to let God deal with the emotional side of the results of sin, that you might learn to actually feel right. Whew. Anybody in here long to feel right? Come on. Anytime you do anything because you're in pain, you're longing to feel right. Anytime you do anything because you're embarrassed to deal with that embarrassment, it's because you want to feel right. Through the righteousness of Christ, your nakedness has been covered with the righteous clothing of Christ. You stand robed in the glory of God's Son, and you should feel like it. You should feel like it. Because God took that sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, spread out. Let's take this one step further. This is heavy, but it's, it's so key to this. Jesus was not wearing anything on the cross. There was no loincloth. Adam and Eve sinned. Their eyes are open and they're naked and ashamed. Christ, who never sinned, gave himself willingly for us and was stripped of all his righteousness, all his clothing, all, all, everything he deserved. He was stripped of it and spread out naked and ashamed. This is the most vulnerable moment in all of creation when the Son of God chooses to expose himself in that way. And God takes his sacrificial lamb and the righteousness from his son, and then he clothes us in it. This is an important image for the Christian. Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, If then 
You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You hear that? You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Educated, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then. The image here is clothing. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on Love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts where you feel. Put on the righteousness of Christ. In the armor of God, what protects your heart? Come on, shout it out. The breastplate of righteousness. What protects your gut? Your conscience, where you feel stuff. Righteousness. Righteousness. How does God deal with your emotional, the emotional consequence of your shame? Righteousness. Righteousness. You have been made righteous in God. Put on the righteousness of God. It protects your heart. It protects your spirit. It protects your soul. It protects your gut on those deep levels. It protects where you feel. On the emotional side. And if you can learn to rest in the righteousness of Christ. Not because of what you've done. But because of what he's done. Not because of what you've earned. But because of what he's given to you in Christ. Then you can feel right. The beginning word of righteousness is right. That you might feel right. Oh, I've spent so much of my life feeling wrong. God Desire so deeply through your forgiveness to feel right. And God wants you to. As his child, he desires so deeply to cover your nakedness and your shame. You can't do it on your own. Every time you try, it's fig leaves and polluted garment. Every time, it has to be stepping out vulnerably to God and the Father embracing you and wrapping you in the clothing of his precious son, Jesus Christ. He has granted to you in his son, the ability to clothe yourselves with righteous deeds. Revelation 19. This was a lot. There's a lot of thoughts in this. A lot of teaching. And it's taken me a long time to wrestle through it. And I've taught through it before and read. And to get to the point where I feel like I'm starting to understand this. So 
these notes will be up on the website, on the blog, and you can go back and listen to this and wrestle through this. If you have any questions about this, feel free to ask me, and I'll probably do some review in the coming weeks, but continue to wrestle with this. And I want you to ask the question of yourselves honestly, have I dealt with the emotional side of the result of my sin, or have I only dealt with the legal side? I want you to ask God that and then honestly let him speak and then step out of your hiding place vulnerably before God because he desires to clothe you. And it's a whole lot better to be clothed by God than by yourself. Trust me, been there. So much better. So much freer. And you can sleep at night with peace and shalom. Team, would you join me up here? I, I mentioned at the beginning of the service that I wrote a song for this sermon series. Um, one of the ways that I have personally interacted with God the most throughout my life in a, on a personal, intimate level is by writing music. And most of it's just for me. Um, and no one will ever hear it. Sometimes there's something that I feel like the Lord has asked me to share. And so I wanted to um, be vulnerable myself and create something for us as a, as a church family. And so um, the name of this song is Never Forsaken. It comes from our series... And it's a, it's a little bit of a tough song in the sense that it moves from a minor key to a major key. It moves from accusation of God to proclamation of God's goodness. It moves from questioning if God is there to proclaiming that he is. It moves from, I'm going to start it by myself and then be joined in community. It moves from isolation to community. So the beginning of the song is raw, but they're all words that you'll find in Scripture. Like I read in Psalm 18 to begin the service, God hides himself in thick darkness and clouds. And I don't know about you, but sometimes that frustrates me and hurts me (laughs) when I think about God hidden from me. But then God also reveals himself in glory and light and is near. And so this song is an attempt to wrestle with those things. And we're going to do it a couple times throughout this series. So this morning I would just invite you to reflect and listen, and then in the coming weeks, if you'll join us and sing uh, with us.
Father, we thank you for your word, God. It promises us you will never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you that even though we experience so many times in life where you seem to be so distant, so many times where we look down at ourselves and see nothing but fig leaves and rags of righteousness and shame and pollution, God, your word stands firm through all the ages. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Your son stretched out on our behalf, crying out, the only one, the only one who is worthy, the only one who could ever, <laughs> ever live life without shame, the only one who could ever live life without guilt. He was the one who said, God, you've forsaken me. And it was true because you turned away from him. And he bore the wrath that we so much deserved. And all the darkness and all the pain was poured down upon him. You poured it out, the full cup of suffering. He drank it down to the bottom, forsaken by you on our behalf. And so we stand as your children because of that sacrifice, forgiven, washed clean, and clothed in righteousness, knowing confidently as your children, that you will never leave nor forsake us. We thank you for that, God. Amen.